Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Carpets and Coffee, the reptile podcast that is literally made up on the spot with very little to no agenda. But a lot of coffee. <laughs> and a lot of coffee to stimulate spontaneity. Um, before we get into any of our usual shenanigans, uh, first of all, Eric is not uh, feeling 100%, so he's he's taking a rest at home. His asthma is affected by the cold weather, as is probably a lot of people. I know I have you know challenges with that, so... Uh, you all are getting the intern special today. Um, another dose of double trouble, dumb diddy dum dum. I guess. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, it's smart and smarter. We smart don't do and smarter. Dumb coffee and coffeeer. <laughs> um, and then we did want to definitely lead off by reminding everyone to go become a member of US Arc in some form or fashion. The lowest tier is $5 a month. You can even go up further than that. Um, there's a lot of legislation going on around the country right now. South Carolina, Florida, Illinois, uh, and more New York. Yeah. Uh, all about somehow restricting your rights to keep and or transport uh, reptiles legally. And uh, so they're the only organization that's out there really fighting and paying attention to everything that's going on everywhere to protect those rights. And, uh, they are nonprofit. So the more money we can send their way to, you know, keep, keep them going is, is beneficial. And there's been a lot of stuff going on lately. That's brought more attention to that, not just the legislation, but, you know, people in need of help with, uh, all the weather and fundraising from, uh, different avenues to help these folks that have been without power and lost animals and, is that, you know, if you've been living under a rock and you haven't heard um, several states, Texas and a few others, uh, to name just, you know, one of the major ones have been hit ridiculously hard yeah. with insanely cold, unusually cold weather and rolling blackouts, no power. And, and even water in some cases. Yeah, yeah. for weeks. Um, yeah. And, you know, some of these folks are prepared with double generators, like backups on backups. And when things get that cold and things freeze, it doesn't matter how prepared you are. So I can't even, I can't even imagine. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And and then with animals that need it warm, I can't even imagine, you know, the loss that everyone's gone through. So there's some, there's a reptile relief fund 101 on Facebook. There's, you know, just donating um, to us arc. There's a lot people can do. So absolutely. I mean, my, my heart goes out to all the people in Texas that have had to, you know, make tough calls and watch, you know, their, their collections and the animals they love, you know, uh, and not yeah. make it in some cases. That's, that's absolutely horrifying. And, and, you know, kind of the nightmare situation for, for what we do. Um, and in regards to the U.S. arc, absolutely. You know, it's, it's such a critical moment right now for the community to put a good foot forward and, make sure that we support the people that are fighting for us. Um, like you said, they really are the only one doing so. And, and with a lot of this stuff, um, it's a lot easier for the other interests to take it away than it would ever be for us to get it back. You know, once that, once that goes, it's, it's a lot harder to push the boulder back uphill and and get that kind of stuff back. So we really do want to, um, support the people that are doing the work on the ground, 
talking to the politicians and, and going to court and whatnot um, to, to keep our ability to keep, if yeah. you will, um, yeah. really important right now. And, and definitely not a good time to, uh, to ostrich your head in the sand <laughs> about these yeah. kinds of issues, especially For with sure. uh, COVID and, and everybody, you know, having an, an increased awareness of exotic animals and, uh, kind of the new stigma around mm-hmm. exotics, that mm-hmm. term, you know, mm-hmm. and and people thinking that they're going to bring diseases, even if they were born in my house in Oakland. You know, it's like sure. people aren't, aren't, you know, you can't expect the public to understand exactly what we do. And that's why we have to be uh, positive and open to educating and, you know, make make good impressions right now. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, that that's an, a really good point to make. If anybody is into making content, even if it's just sharing photographs on Instagram in the description, you can write something positive about the snake or whatever you, you can you can make uh, a decent impact on on the folks around you just by being a good steward for these animals and kind of, you know, helping just be honest and genuine. And if like people ask or you know, say, oh, that's disgusting or have really foul opinions, you can really make a difference and, and change some of these opinions um, and just have a lasting effect. And it all kind of collectively adds to changing the misconceptions towards these animals, which ultimately can trickle into, you know, legislation. A lot of the common folks don't don't follow, you know, these things that we do, don't pay attention to the animals like we do. So it's up to us to to kind of get the good information out there and anybody with a voice that's doing anything in any big way, you know, that's where your, your focus could really be uh, most impactful right now. Um, you know, nothing negative, no ranting, no, none of that. So hundred um, yeah. percent. Yeah. I mean, we all know those people in our lives that were, you know, the only good snakes, a dead snake and sure. you actually show them sure. the snake. And, and, you know, that's one of my absolute favorite things about keeping is watching mm-hmm. that light bulb go off for people. Yeah. Um, and, and in within like 10 minutes, you know, they're like, Oh, I want to hold it now. Like these are pretty cool. You know, that's, that is a really powerful uh, avenue that we have, um, you know, that, we got to keep in mind for sure with every, with all the content because it is COVID. So, yeah, you know, it's all virtual at this point, but all the content, you know, we should, we should really be focusing on the good. And, and then the other side of that is being sensitive to the people who aren't involved in reptiles and understanding that you're not going to convince everyone and that's okay. Mm -hmm. It's their right to not like reptiles or not want to see, you know, graphic things like feeding or, Um, I don't know, just anything, you know, we're so normalized to some of these things that might seem extreme to people outside of it. Uh, we don't necessarily realize the effect it can have in a public forum like YouTube or Instagram or movies, videos, whatever. Um, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the public has seen, the public has seen, uh, tarantulas and snakes as, you know, negative things in like Indiana Jones and all this stuff. So. (laughs) <laughs> they see that more than they see us putting out the good positive stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Ish says here, maybe no live feeding vids right now it brings negative publicity. Um, yeah. I and I, un- I understand there's certain animals where it's really unique to see them feed like egg eaters or um, snake feedings 
on other snakes or like big prey items, I can, I can completely see the appeal to, to folks wanting to see that. Um, but yeah, I've never been a fan of, of really wanting to share much of that. I tried mm-hmm. to avoid it almost entirely myself. I think I've showed some feeding with the Kribos, but like, that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, we just have to be really sensitive to, to everything that's going on out there. So yeah, Jennifer Strickland says the same thing. Live feeding is a good point. I have a policy if you show live feeding on social media, automatically unfollow, not because I disagree with live feeding, but because of the negative perception. Yeah, mm-hmm. perception is reality. And unfortunately, um, you know, as much as that seems like a crappy way to just, it almost could seem like accepting defeat. It's not, it's the reality of the situation that you right. can't change people and what they see is how they see it no matter what. So, you know, erring on the safe side when things are so volatile, like right now is kind of the responsible way to go. Um, you know, and if you want to do things that are maybe not so responsible, just don't do it on camera. Sure. That's all. So, but anyway, Lucas has been up early. I have been up early. I got up an hour before my alarm clock this morning. I'm not sure why. Um, I really How don't early know. is that? <laughs> uh, well, on my days off, I don't like to sleep in past seven thirty. You know, that's a good, that's a good amount of sleep for me. Um, gotcha. So I was up at like six this morning just because, and so I've already like pulled rodents for some feeding. I've already done dishes, refilled the humidifier, cleaned snakes, uh, checked on my inventory, done some editing, like all this good Damn. stuff. And that was all before coffee. Incredible. Your, yeah. your productivity is admirable. <laughs> I got up. All I did was walk the dog, walk to a bakery to get chocolate croissant Ooh. for my fat ass. And oh, that sounds here. good. <laughs> yeah. I, no, I, can't, good. I can't wait for COVID stuff to like completely stop impacting business hours and availability. Cause right across the street at Vicks in the back half, they have a, like a coffee pastry shop thing. That's really good stuff for breakfast. Nice. Now it's just not open only on certain days. So I have to walk a fair like distance to get to this bakery. Plus mm. like I lit my apartment buildings at the top of a hill. So I feel like by the time I get back, I've earned it, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's built into <laughs> to sure. the process. <laughs> sure. Yeah. It's, it's all a system. Yeah. What did, uh, what was your, what was your bean of choice this morning? What was your cup of Joe? You know, I actually, uh, I ran out. So I was doing the blue bottle coffee. I think that we talked about. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Ran out of beans, which was part of my decision to go to the bakery. So I just got whatever they were making there. I got a large coffee at the bakery. Um, Okay. Like one of their house roasts or something. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure what they're using, but definitely a dark roast. Definitely pretty strong. Yeah, nice. I'm I'm feeling good. <laughs> yeah. No, How about I, you? Uh, I'm I'm still on that Pete's Coffee Major Dickinson's blend because I haven't had the time to go to any of the local I do want to go to a local roasting shop or at least see if the Vicks place does a house blend because I would like to um you know promote a local a local business right. uh, in any way that I can. Um even if it just means like going and buying some of their beans, sending you some, sending Eric some, <laughs> and just making sure it's okay that, you know, we talk about it on, on the air. I, I don't even need them to like give it to me for free or like, you know, no payments or anything. I just, 
I feel like we can give back to a, a small business. So like if, if there's a time where we can go get some local beans somewhere and like promote a local business just by talking about them and, you know, maybe the off chance somebody in your neighborhood, you know, hears about it or, or something, they buy it, it could help. So yeah, that'd be sweet. That way we'll have some relevance in the first word of the name of this show or second word coffee. Have you had Verve from Santa Cruz? I think I have. Yes. That's a good one too. We can send Eric some verve. Yeah. He would like that. Mm. One of the, the ones I've had most recently that I really enjoyed was a, uh, um, a Kona estate reserve blend that a friend of mine got. She's part of a, like a special coffee, like Hawaii unique food and thing club where they like send you things monthly and they send her, a bag of these estate beans and she already had some she knew i like coffee so she gave that to me and that was it was sweet and lighter than i'm used to getting but it was mm. so good so good Are you a and dark roast guy you must I be am. Beets. Yeah. yeah 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 i like i like dark i like medium to dark um and the reason i'm okay with you know the spectrum is because since i i grind my own beans and then i i brew it in the french press i can control a little bit of how it's going to come out mm. Mm-hmm. So more flavorful or dilute or stronger or less strong. So I tend to like it with more bold flavor and some good, uh, some good kick to it. A good little jolt. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Make it some jet fuel, you know, sign this, me up. This is reminding me when I was at UC Santa Cruz, I lived with a good friend of mine who is a PhD student, like a mechanical engineering PhD guy. Right. So he's high strung. He, he's intense, <laughs> but he, he had this coffee called Death Wish. Have you heard of it? Oh, Death yes, Wish? I have heard of that. Dude, it's like yeah. the most caffeinated coffee yeah. you can buy. And he shared that with me and I lost my freaking mind. <laughs> like <laughs> I had already had normal coffee and he was like, try this. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it dude. was bad. It no, was there's bad. there's people out there that are just like mad scientists about it. They're like, how can I make it stronger and darker and blacker? <laughs> And like, so there's a lot of like metal bands that are getting their own coffee beans. Like I think behemoth makes their own coffee. Uh, uh, there's yeah, it's, it's cool. So yeah, we talk about Owen squirrel a lot. Death wish turned me into the squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Coffee's so good. Uh, Denton Gallagher asked if it's okay to feed uh, Savannah monitors, live crawfish. Hmm. Um, so when I think of feeding crawfish, whether live or not, I think of um, the Australian uh, Mertens water monitors that are kind of crawfish and uh, crustacean specialists. And they have an instinct for instantly ripping off the the pinching arms and going for the meat. Um, that being said, I don't think a savanna monitor has that instinct being more of an insect specialist kind of in the heart of Africa, not necessarily near where crawfish are. That being said, I don't see any harm in trying it um, just to ensure that it one doesn't get loose in your cage and two, he doesn't hurt himself uh, or it just goes uneaten. But I don't see why he couldn't try it. I would just, I don't know, an animal that's... The pinchers off before you offer yeah and then the other thing that makes me curious is being somewhere where maybe crawfish wouldn't be a a normal part of his diet is his digestive system capable of handling the exoskeleton in that quantity 
I don't know the answer to that. Right. Um, so with that being said, if you were to try it and he were to like it and, and take it, I wouldn't probably make it a regular thing. I would maybe make it a once in a lifetime enrichment, um, food item and just be mindful of how his bowel movements are afterwards. If you see him really stressing and having a tough time passing that exoskeleton, which he shouldn't, you know, I mean, you keep them hot, they can pretty much digest anything. So I would say give it a whirl. Um, what do you think of feeding bugs to certain species of snakes? Yeah, I was just watching a video of a, uh, a copperhead eating a cicada the other day. I've seen oh, that video. Really? So, yeah, yeah, they do that. I've seen that plenty of times. Yeah, and uh, there's the, the green tree moths yeah. as well. Yep, that's been documented. Um, heck, there's somebody locally to me who fed her king snake uh, scrambled eggs. Wow. It ate it. <laughs> So uh, classic king snake. <laughs> yeah, right. There might be an exception to a rule when it involves a king king snake. Yeah. I would say um Candoya, give it a shot. I do know that they seem to be um rather specialized in their food. So I know some people get a lot of them to eat like morning geckos or house geckos mm. or um little frogs. I depends on the species i i really don't have much experience with candoya i've worked with some in zoos but never bred any never had to deal with babies so yeah i'm not i'm not 100 sure i i would think that it wouldn't hurt to offer you know bugs are pretty pretty easy pickings for for most predators out there yeah i mean there would be two approaches i would think you know hypothetically one you could try tong feeding doesn't take it then right. that's one interpretation or you could leave it in there and then see if it hunts it later on or whatever, as long as it's not going to try and predate upon your snake and nibble on it or stress it out or something. I, I don't know. I would say it's worth, it's worthy of experimentation for sure. In my opinion. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Did you want to, to jump in to our kind of our, our first main thing that we were talking about or did you want to meander around the other stuff first <laughs> oh welcome to the way. intern yeah, special folks the intern special we there's there's many things to talk about uh i do have my notes pulled up from that reading if you wanted to touch on that but yeah hey, dealer's choice <laughs> whatever you want to do <laughs> well so we've got two tangents that we can go on and get those out of the way or save those for later maybe we should tangent first Oh, we're going to tangent first, everybody. We're going to tangent first. I like it. The wild card. Yes. And of course, as always, anybody out there in the chat, if there's anything you want to hear about, let us know. Because yeah. otherwise, we're just going to go. Yeah. <laughs> we got some stuff in mind. <laughs> so my my first tangent is, is I got more lights, in case you couldn't tell the, the yes. backdrop behind me. I'm really, really uh, stoked on them, and I wish I had done it sooner. I... I've just never really cared. I've always just used the ambient light through the windows, but this is so much nicer. Um, barring, you know, some modifications to get them, you know, a little bit more secure in there. Um, I'm, I'm now very, very pleased to have lights in there, especially the top cage. It's all the way up there. Makes it a lot easier to see and the bottom one too. So oh, yeah. it's, it's so much nicer, right? Just in terms of like actually just being in there and observing right. the animal. It's great. And then when you're cleaning, you can actually like see. <laughs> yeah, you can see just how much I've neglected to clean over the winter. It's awesome. I was now, so self-conscious. I cleaned all of the glass yesterday. 
Nice. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Um, but are those uh, uh, strips, uh, adhesive strip ons, or they're not adhesive? They're the uh, so if you go on Amazon and look up, I'm gonna butcher the name. I sent it to Owen um, yesterday. There's a couple varieties uh, on there. Obviously, if you go look up, you know, LED strip lights, there's plenty, but these ones in particular. Where am I? They are the Kihung, that's K-I-H-U-N-G, T5 LED tube light fixture, four feet, each one's 20 watts, 4,000 Kelvin cool white light strips, and there's eight packs and 12 packs. The eight pack is like 50 bucks, the 12 packs is like 64 bucks. Nice. And these are four foot cages, and those lights are 46 inches, so they just fit in. I just drilled some holes and, and threaded it. So basically, like, they link through like a serpentine system because the lights can all connect to themselves. So it's just one switch or you That's can do awesome. it individually. So each light is its own switch if you want. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I'm going to be, you know, curious to see if the animals spend more time, like going in and out of their hides, see if there's more activity as a result of it. Cause otherwise, you know, I mean, if they don't change any behavior, I won't be surprised either, but. It's and, and have you noticed, um, do those particular lights give off any heat or are they nope. nice? Okay. Yeah. I, I snagged another cage to quarantine the blackhead. Um, and I had them put in, uh, another, uh, UV light, you mm-hmm. know, because I've been slowly adding those, but they were out of the, uh, I think eight inch one. So they put in mm-hmm. like a, a mm-hmm. jumbo one and I had it on yesterday and, and, uh, it was just too hot. Like that, that light was giving mm-hmm. off quite a bit of heat which was unfortunate um the was entire gear just a t5 bulb just t5 bulb but mm. just a really big one and and that entire cage was at about 84 and i was like eh, nope go. <laughs> can't do that so you gotta go yeah i gotta get a smaller one unfortunately well but, get leds so yeah leds are much uh less prone to putting out light unless you have multiple strips of them then the whole you know unit itself can can generate some heat but um for sure. Yeah, yeah. The, the two six foot cages I have on order are going to have the LEDs. Nice. Um, so that'll, that'll be cool. But yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, you hear the, the people these days talking about UV for snakes and, and I have certainly seen some cool results from providing it for my falsy. But I guess one thing that folks don't tend to talk about is how that influences your, your temperature environment and Maybe I'm just using the wrong stuff, but yeah, it really, really heated up the cage for me there. Yeah, I've I've definitely worked with some of those T5 strip lights, and when you get into the big ones, they they can get warm for sure. Yeah. Um. So it's definitely mindful or something to be mindful of. And then Chris Sexton brings up a good point um, about when you're drilling the holes, make sure not to make them too large for your cables and lights, so you don't make it escape uh, accessible. Mm. So. Fortunately, these cables, they're like a three prong system where I took like a a half inch drill bit, just drilled a hole and then kind of shimmied it around in a circle to widen it um, and just was able to snug them through. So I don't even think a baby carpet, if if there were ever to be a baby carpet in here, could get out. But they're they're only for my adult cages, so they cannot they cannot do anything about that, fortunately. But yeah, definitely measure twice cut once (laughs) yeah (laughs) these pvc cages aren't cheap and they are hard to get so 
if you're like me and you 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 pride in and good pvc enclosures you know just make sure you do it right the first time 100 percent. what kind are those behind you by the way these are animal plastics they're the the t8 so they're four by two by ones i um you know these were all hand-me-downs over the years from from friends selling them or or you know hooking me up or whatever and uh I will say they work great for adult carpets um, and I can just barely fit my head in there sideways and turn and do some cleaning <laughs> and whatnot. But um, in all honesty, if, if, you know, if money and, and there weren't any boundaries to getting them and I had an ideal setup uh, for an adult female carpet, it would be a four foot by at least 15 tall, just so I can add a shelf in there. Nice. I, I, I don't think they necessarily need it super tall unless you're you're willing to add extra wattage and heat management in order to maintain that larger airspace. Um, and I think, you know, getting different levels, no matter how high it is off the ground, kind of gives them that that feeling of being off the ground. They like shelves right. a lot and you can get creative with 15 inches, 18 inches. You can put branches and perches and stuff in. So, you know, 12 inches works and my animals are, you know, thriving in them. But in a perfect world, I would have everybody in, you know, 15 to 18 inch tall cages. I would even love to, you know, ultimately have a finite collection other than a few babies that I hold back every so often where all the females are in four footers, all the males are in um, like three footers and then, you know, babies born and raised in racks until Mm -hmm. they can go into a a smaller enclosure with some confidence. So that would be the ideal system uh, for me down the line. I, I really enjoy having glass front enclosures with lights so I can see my animals really pay attention to their behavior and just keep a closer eye on them. For sure. Yeah. I, I feel the same way a lot of the time, but then I see something and I'm like, I need that species. Ooh, shiny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Andy Middleton DM'd me about thylacine footage coming out. So that's crazy. Uh, oh, snap. Don't have a don't have the chance to look at that while we're doing this. But what's that all about? Let us know. Did they find one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is it real? <laughs> yeah. I well, I think I think we assumed it went extinct way too soon. And I think it's actually been a, around longer than we think. And there's some folks that hypothesize that there are still some out there in some remote areas. So that's why there's such a stir about it, but I'm not, I'm not plugged into that. I would love for that to be true. That would be <laughs> sweet. Dave Kendrick asks any leaks on how the carpet complex will look after the new book comes out. Um, I don't know anything for sure. Nick uh, keeps those things close to his chest and I know better than to ask. Um, <laughs> that being said, knowing Nick and having gone herping with him once recently since, you know, the talks of the new book while he's been working on it and, and just how things have changed over the years. I'm I'm going to guess that some things are going to be lumped together that have been differentiated, but I think it will be still discernible, just more in a locality variety instead of a full subspeciation. Because subspeciation is is really, really hard to to prove and validate. And if it it's if it's gonna be disproven, I, I find that's gonna be, you know, maybe something that will warrant future research to, to resurrect subspecies if that's what somebody wants to do. But I think we're going to see, you know, jungles and coastals and things like that kind of be defined by the same, 
you know, speciation, but maybe more locality difference. And what we're seeing is just in their point of evolution, this is where they are at. I don't know. I think some stuff is going to change. Like I hope inlands get raised to full species status. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But when, who knows? Yeah. yeah. When I talked to him last, uh, he said that the preliminary results have been pretty interesting, but that not enough of those, of those gene uh, locusts, I think the word is, have been sequenced for, for him to make any definitive Okay. Uh, decisions yet um, so then maybe nothing will change right and it'll just be speculative it's hard I, and i was talking about this with loafman recently too and what what zach was saying which is an interesting perspective is that this technology with with the mitochondrial genome sequ- sequencing and whatnot is in his words just incredibly new and really the science of it is in its infancy mm-hmm. and um it's you know like what the scientists are looking for and deeming significant is different now than it even was just a year or two ago. Um, so what, what Zach was saying is that it really does have to be, uh, taken with a little bit of a grain of salt and you have to look at a lot of genes to get Mm -hmm. a good idea. Mm -hmm. Um, you can't just base your, your conclusions on one, one gene, Mm -hmm. um, which is really interesting and way above my head and my and my pay grade, but it's going to be really really interesting to see what they do with that in the book and how they describe what their methods were, you know, for for dummies like me to understand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you have a, a handle on what field biology entails as a field biologist, right? I have participated in field biology work over the years in zoos and have, you know, come to understand what that entails. And basically what it boils down to, if I'm understanding it correctly, is that a lot more sampling needs to be done across all species, subspecies, localities, a lot more time with the technology needs to be taken for further understanding and development before any definitive things can really come to light. But it, you know, we're getting there and a lot of things are suggesting that there could be some, some changes, but I mean, yeah, you have to think of the sample size Mm -hmm. that needs to be studied to have a comprehensive view. And even then it'll never be a hundred percent. So, and Completely with a grain of salt, I might be off base here, um, mm-hmm. but I I think my understanding of what Zach was trying to get at is that even just within the individual animal itself, you can have wide divergence on one gene locus, but then maybe on another one, it's like very close, right? Because there's there's a lot of these different genes to analyze in, in the single animal, of course. Um, so I, I think, and I might be completely wrong, <laughs> but I think that what he was trying to get across to me is that it, in the single animal, in the one animal you're looking at, you have to check a lot of different genes to get a better idea. Um, but there's probably geneticists that would laugh at me right now and tell me I don't know what I'm talking about because I don't. <laughs> so, well, good thing nobody here is a geneticist right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Andy says there was trail camera footage with a male, a female, and a joey confirming they're actively reproducing and present in Northeast Tasmania. Wow. Everybody, thylacines are alive. No, that is you, amazing. You heard <laughs> it here on Carpets and Coffee. <laughs> that is very cool. Now do Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
and uh, and Nessie and the Abominable Snow Monster and Dracula. Mm. Dracula. That'd be cool. <laughs> I bet you. That's the one, huh? No mod man. What? What? Yeah. What do you think Dracula would keep if he were a reptile keeper? Hmm. Probably something with fangs. He'd be a, a hot keeper, right? Yeah. Fangs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I feel like he would. Uh, feel like he would keep um, black spinning cobras. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. All right. I... Mystery solved. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> that was not part of our tangent plan that just happened. Y'all were witness to some gold right now. Um, my last tangent is that uh, <laughs> that Kribo female of mine is, in fact, gravid. Um, I don't know if anybody watches my YouTube channel, Ooh. but like I've been saying it and like kind of, you know, 95% certain, but every day I check on her, she gets bigger and bigger. Here, where am I going? There we go. Nice. Yeah, look at that. So she's literally about to pop. I'm going to feed her today uh, or attempt to feed her today. I don't know if she'll take. She's been taking every week thus far. Um, if she doesn't take today, then uh, then I'm going to be popping a heat lamp right above her hide just to give her a little bit more of a basking spot because I run her ambient. Um, and then probably turn the room up a little bit. So we will, we will see what happens, but Super I'm excited. Yeah. I got to get good eggs first. You know, um, right. there's a thing with Kribos. If your female is not big enough, um, you know, there can be complications with, mm. uh, egg deposition. Um, you know, who knows? I could get a bunch of slugs. How um, are you feeling about her size wise from talking to, uh, the, uh, John, John Michaels. I feel like she's there. Um, you know, everybody says around six feet is where you want. And she's right around six feet, just eyeballing it. Um, you know, she can go across the length of a four foot cage and double back on herself. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen the size of the eggs. So, you know, they're, they're good size eggs and she's, she's going to be five. She's five actually. Mm -hmm. So it's about as early as I'd want a breeder. Um, so I, I feel really good. But then again, yeah. I also felt really good when I was pairing them in November and she almost died. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I clearly don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Um, but <laughs> that being said, you know, everything that John has told me seems to show that I'm on the right track. So I'm encouraged by that. So we'll see. Awesome. Um, yeah, definitely yeah. crossing fingers. And, and you, you're setting up an entirely different incubator, right? To, yeah. So to I, I low. Yeah, I had to break break down to buy a second incubator. Um, I actually have a big, like, you know, six foot tall Sobe fridge that I've converted, and nice. that's that's running, but that's set at eighty seven uh, for Python eggs. And um, you know, Kribos they they live much cooler, and their eggs cook much cooler, so they need it around seventy five, seventy six. So um, I got one of those uh, smaller mini fridge looking incubators that exoterra makes but this one's a a knockoff um you know kind of brand nameless manufacturer version that has a cooling feature in it so it can drop down into the 50s um and which are hard to get right now dude everybody's buying everything in the reptile hobby so like i had to buy one off amazon couldn't even get one through through the shop through work so wow 
Yeah. So that yeah. was interesting. So um, I'll be getting that as soon as I see her go into shed, I'll be plugging that in and making sure it can run for about five weeks um, before, before eggs are, are there. And nice. uh, we'll, we'll let them cook at 75, which hardly seems like cooking. And uh, let's see, see if I don't screw this up. So I really want to do well because um, I want to, I want to finally, you know, offer some for sale. Cause I know there's a lot of people who want some. Um, there's a couple people who uh, close friends are going to get, you know, one or two and in trade or because they deserve it sort of thing. So um, especially with recent events, you know, people losing the animals. There's yeah. somebody in particular who I want to, who I want to reach out to. So, hmm. um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about that. So that was my other tangent. I should have good Kribo eggs. And did you know that Kribo eggs are textured? I did not. Uh, yeah. Like Just almost naturally? Like, like crocodile eggs where they almost have like, really? Yeah. Like weird coarseness to them. So I'm excited what part, to see that. Do you know off the top of your head, what part of South America, the blacktails are from? Uh, like Costa Rica, so like northern, oh, central, central America, and and northern South America. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, that's so, gonna be awesome. Yeah, that's gonna be so cool. There, there's a lot of debate about whether like unicolors and blacktails are the same thing, and I think really? they're. Yeah, I think I, I'm not up to speed, so I could be butchering this research, but I'm pretty sure like genetically they're not different at all. But hmm. phenotypically, you know, one does have a black tail and the other doesn't. Right. <laughs> yeah. I like the black tails. I think that they are my favorite of the group. Um, the you yellow tails see, are cool. You need to see a big nine foot yellow tail in person before that's you. That's probably true. <laughs> when you see one of those, because their heads are different, man. They're more oh, angular. Mm -hmm. They're flatter. They're a little more like chiseled. And they just turn around and they just give you this mean look. And you're like, oh, don't do it. Oh, <laughs> they're, they're serious, dude. I had a big, angry, imported one turn around on me. And I was like, holy shit. This is amazing. That's gotta be ask. careful. Yeah. yeah, and most Dude. of them are imported at this point, right? For the yellow. Yeah, tails? I mean, there's, yeah. The, yeah, they're they're legally imported, so you see plenty of that. Um, I don't. I just don't think that enough people have put pairs together for there to be much uh, available captive born bred. There certainly are uh, plenty of folks, you know, breeding them. John Michaels again is number one mm -hmm. for a lot of the, the dry mic dry mark on variety, but there's a handful of people with, you know, pairs here and there that produce them. So nice. Yeah. Um, someday, man, I would, I would love, well, the black tails of course, but also those, uh, indigos with the red on the throat. Yeah. So, so nice. Just like Morelia. Once you get them, you realize you need all of them. Of course. So, here, so here's your lineup. You need black tails. <laughs> you need unicolors. You need yellow tails. You need the uh, Eastern Indigos and the, the black variety and the red throat variety. You need the Texas Indigos and then you need the Mexican Indigos. Yeah, the Mexican Indigos are nice too. Yeah, yeah. the, the Rubidus, the Guerreros, the, mm -hmm. they, they have like speckling and smoky and red. and oh, They're the such whole... cool snakes. I feel like I just wouldn't be able to do an Indigo justice at the moment. Like I would want to give oh, that sure. snake so much space <laughs> sure sure yeah that's why like, like i've i've had the dry mark on bug for you know eight years almost now and that's why i only have my two black tails because you know ultimately if i plan on expanding them they to me they need to be treated like you know put in the diamond room sort of deal like mm -hmm. have them in a cold room where you have individual you know heat lamps on them that go on during the day but otherwise you know it's probably best to run them a little bit separately if you're running a big room of pythons which you know, 
I fully get that, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. But you can get one or two. There you go. They yeah. just grow so damn fast, though, dude. Like I've only really seen do. an indigo in person once. Okay. And it was at an animal sanctuary, but it was more mm-hmm. just like a roadside attraction in Savannah, Georgia. And nice. poor thing was in this tiny cage, and it was obese as all hell. It was the chunkiest thing I'd ever seen in my life. You know, uh, that that's too bad. I, and I can't say I haven't seen that before. I've seen yeah. a lot of people keep Kribos in really, really small enclosures um they they need space my male is in a six foot enclosure and sometimes it's not enough for him like he's just rubbing his face on things and like if they don't have enough room they'll tell you they'll rub their rostral scales raw you'll Mm. always have depigmentation if they're in too small of an enclosure and they'll always be defensive and pissed because they're always cornered Mm. they need they need space for sure right yeah Uh, that's that's what i mean like i would love to someday if i if i do it like yeah. just do a big ass, you know, zoo style naturalistic thing. Um, yeah. I think that that would just be so cool. <laughs> they, they, they use it. There are species that like, if you go a sterile blank minimalistic enclosure, you're going to have a stereotypic behaving yeah. stressed out animal. Like they need bedding to, to burrow around and they need stuff to smell. You know, they need hides, they need, you know, enrichment. They need, a lot of yeah. things to kind of interact with and, and change it up regularly or monitor like in a way, you know? Yeah. They just, they, they seem to be more intellectually active all the time compared with other species that mm-hmm. when they sleep, things kind of turn down, like these guys sleep at night. So during the day, like they're out doing stuff all the time. Naturally right. they're, they're hunters. They're, they're not ambush predators. They are, hunters they go out and murk stuff like they don't find a rodent trail and sit there for weeks on end they're like rodent trail boom they're chasing They'll find the rodent like yeah car chase you know what i mean yeah so um yeah they're they're awesome snakes and then the other thing to be mindful with them is that it's a limited gene pool so right. like you know we in morelia i have no problem selling pairs knowing that they might breed that pair down the line with with black tails that you know, I'll only be selling somebody a pair if they're like, no, I, I intend on breeding this one to this line, this over here, because, you know, inbreeding is a serious thing for this particular species. So, mm-hmm. but, um, sure. yeah, but that little note on enrichment is a good way to segue into yeah. that, uh, that paper that you sent us, uh, Owen, yes. Eric and I in the chat and I'll kind of introduce this and then I'll let you, let you rip because you probably sure. have a better comprehensive uh understanding on it but basically the backstory for everybody listening and watching is this paper was done um studying uh some north american rat snakes if i'm not mistaken it was 16 individuals and they did a comparative study on a group that was given sort of a a standard uh care style of uh housing with nothing flashy no enrichment just kind of the basics nuts and bolts hide water paper sort of thing and then the other group was given a lot more attention to enrichment and novel items to then eventually see how they handled novelty in their life down the road and the comprehensive sort of analysis of what it meant for them intellectually. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it, it, it's an interesting paper. Uh, environmental enrichment alters the behavioral profile of rat snakes in the genus Alafe. Um, 2006. Okay. And 
And part of why it's such an interesting paper and why I sent it to you, Eric and Owen is because in the world of ethology or animal behavior study, snakes are the ugly redheaded stepchild, right? Like nobody pays attention to snakes mm -hmm. uh, because it's just assumed that they are pretty cognitively vacant, uh, you know, not super bright, um, just guided by instinct and reactivity. The reptilian brain sort of right, right. thought and process. It gets tricky because snakes are, they're a constant poker face in a way. It's, it's very hard to interpret what a snake is thinking, feeling, or doing <laughs> because they don't really emote for us, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so in that respect, it becomes subject subjective very, very quickly. And because of that, it's really hard to do any kind of meaningful behavioral analysis on snakes in a way that will actually get through the academic peer review mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is one of those papers that managed to do that successfully. Um, so just kind of quick synopsis, uh, study investigated the effects of environmentally enriched and standard laboratory housing conditions on the behavioral performance of 16 rat snakes uh, in a split clutch design. So some of the snakes were housed in, quote, enriched environments, uh, and the others were housed in standard conditions, you know, just paper, water bowl, hide versus a more enriched naturalistic setup, right, with like uh, decor, cage decor, and and fake plant, or yeah, I think fake plants and whatnot. Bedding, fake plants, substrate, yeah, organic substrate, yeah, hundred percent. Pieces of, so, piece of a, pieces of you know snake decoration, terrarium furnishings. Yeah, stuff that we would call quote naturalistic. Um, okay. And what was really interesting here is that the enriched condition snakes tended to habituate more quickly than standard condition snakes. Uh, to certain tasks. Um, it was kind of task-based experimentation. Um, that they, they did a few different forms of that, one of which was kind of like a maze-style thing, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Like find the right hole to get the reward. Mm -hmm. um, the snakes that lived in the enriched uh, environments across the board were able to perform that task quicker mm -hmm. um, and acclimate to the... Uh, testing environment faster, um, which is really interesting in terms of what that says about their cognitive function, right? Like clearly their brain is more well-developed for them to learn quicker and perform a task more successfully. Um, and then another part of this that was interesting is that they did some fancy statistics at the end of it all. And that, uh, quote, discriminant function analysis was able to correctly assign every single one of those snakes back to their appropriate housing treatment group. So it was able to determine whether they were one of the snakes that lived in an enriched environment or a standard environment, 100% based on the data from the testing. Um, so it was the, the results were consistent enough for an algorithm to know you were an enriched snake because you did this uh, successfully. And, and vice versa. So that's kind of the overview. And when I sent this to the chat, um, I guess you brought up a really great question, which is like, what, 
what's the point? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, like I in was, a way, I, like I was, I was at first, I thought maybe they were, they were studying this to to see how they could better prepare a snake to maybe go back to the wild for right. a reintroduction. So I was curious if that was the end goal, but I guess there doesn't necessarily have to be an end goal in, in right. research. And I think that in this particular case, there's not a stated end goal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more of of I guess welfare consideration. Which kind of sure. got me thinking, like, what is the benefit to us as private hobbyist keepers of having smarter snakes? Is there a benefit? Do we even care? Do we want them to be dumber? <laughs> like, what, <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think there's definitely peace of mind in knowing that there's a way we can make our, our animal welfare measurably better in that simply adding tank de- decorations and not leaving things bare and, and scarce makes them a little bit intellectually more capable down the line. Um, I, I guess, you know, the ultimate benefit as somebody who's not going to release their, their animals in the wild is, is knowing that your, your snakes are maybe less stressed about things and better capable right. of, of interacting with you or, or novel experiences in the snake room or whatever it is. And, yeah. and it's just kind of interesting to know that, yeah, there is benefit to putting that fake plant, putting those logs in there, moving things around, right. changing the substrate every once in a while, trying new things, textures, scents, yeah. you know, basically. And, and it's neat to see that because it's all happening. Like that paper you said was from 2006. That's right. Mm-hmm. So it's neat to see that in 2006, somebody was able to quantify that and get that paper through peer review, where right now, 14 years later, we have somebody like Lori Torini out there right. um, doing a lot of training and behavioral modification and, and documenting it via video. And and this, this study from 14 years prior uh, basically backs up you know, another thing that she's doing, which is demonstrating that these snakes are smart and that enrichment is important and that, um, that we can very easily and quantifiably improve the welfare of our snakes inside their little plastic boxes or tubs. And it doesn't just have to happen in cages. You know, you can throw fake plants and things in a tub, in a rack system. You can throw bedding in a rack system. You can change things up. You can, move things around every so often you can add sheds of other animals in there for some scent enrichment you can change texture you know play into the natural history of of your animal what do snakes really focus on well you know for the ones that aren't very visually cued in we know they follow scent a lot and texture and and kind of explore based on what they're experiencing so we can you know kind of play to their strengths in that regard or animals that are very you can you can do a lot of things so um yeah, it's just really interesting to see because, you know, the snake side of reptile keeping is is sort of the last last holdout to to publicly yeah. acknowledge that their animals could benefit from enrichment. And absolutely. And it's it's difficult. I get it. You know, it's hard to procure scents or new things for your animals, but it, it can be done. Right. And and it can be done simply as well. It doesn't have to be difficult. I, I feel mm-hmm. like um but yeah, it's especially interesting because like when I was first getting into the hobby, which in my case is not that long ago, right? Maybe four or five years at this point, like people would just say that all that stuff is for the keeper, not the kept, you know, 
like, yeah, you can you can do plants, you can do all these things, but the snake doesn't care. I um, was and I up until recently was one of those people that would say like, yeah, you can add fake plants in there, but I'm not really sure they care. And it's probably more right. for your aesthetics, like right. fully admit doing that. For sure. And I've definitely said it too. Um, and that's why this paper is so interesting because advocates of naturalistic keeping or more enriched enclosures or even people that are just trying to figure out if it does anything mm -hmm. this proves that it does do something mm -hmm. at least in rat snakes um right right, right you know extrapolate as you will based on the different it's probably species. fair to extrapolate i mean when you think about it it's 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 so like it just makes sense right if you're giving mm -hmm. the snake something to investigate and tongue flip upon and interact with right like think of like a baby and and you're trying to uh get those, what is it, neural pathways firing mm -hmm, or whatever, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's probably the same thing. You know, it's like they're not going to exercise their brain if there's nothing for them to to exercise their brain on. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when I was thinking about, you know, maybe what would be beneficial for private keepers having more intelligent animals, even with no... Um, you know, no plans of reintroducing anything into the wild. Um, I was thinking that perhaps the smarter, more intelligent animals might be better mothers. You know, if you're one to do MI type stuff, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, maybe the more cognitively uh, developed snake is the one that doesn't lay the eggs in the water bowl, doesn't kick them around the cage. <laughs> maybe produces um, babies that feed sooner. Right. It's really, it's really smarter animals. About. Yeah. And just from like a completely um, detached perspective, like for me, I just think it's, it's better and more interesting to have a smarter snake. Like in my mind, it just seems like that's one step closer to, to keeping that piece of nature in a box. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You know, that uh, and a more intelligent animal that has been, able to exercise its brain and, and develop these, um, these capabilities is probably a lot closer to the snake you pick up on the ground in, sure. in Australia than something that is just kind of, you know, sitting in the box, like, yeah, I mean, I'll tell you right now, one of the most, um, beneficial, you know, things about my Kribos for me as a keeper is seeing how smart they are seeing how intelligent and tuned in they are, how much they watch. If I hide food, how good they are at finding it and hunting it down and the intelligence factor that they bring that activity, that, you know, palpable sense of more going on upstairs makes them more exciting for me to keep. Yeah. Um, and so just, you know, speaking on that, I enjoy a more intelligent animal in that regard. Exactly. There's, there's value right there. Yeah. Um, and like yeah. you said, too, less stress. Like the study mm -hmm. also points out that the enriched snakes um, were less reactive in mm -hmm. what's called an open field task, right? Mm -hmm. um, basically, you just like throw the snake in a big box and see mm -hmm. what it does. Mm -hmm. And less reactivity is less stress, you know? Um, and, and we all know that even low levels of stress, if they don't get to calm down for long periods of time, is just directly detrimental to health. So right. that could really directly influence the longevity of your animal too. Sure. Um, because stress kills. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've, um, recently, well, not recently, a couple months ago, I moved, um, uh, a two or three year old 
Um, wait, she, she's she'll be three this year. I moved a three-year-old Hedexanic Popwin into a forty-one quart, and she's still very small. She's like you know inch in diameter, maybe two and a half feet long, like small. But I moved her in early because I knew I could provide her the appropriate climate, but also have more room to clutter the enclosure, put some fake plants in a bigger hide, things like that, and see if it made a difference. And, and I mean, right now she still is the devil. Um, <laughs> I'll have to make a video on her cause her and her sibling are quite the exception to the rule. They are just angry, angry. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I would be very curious to see what a camera would pick up when I'm not around, when I'm present. It's a whole nother ball game. She will bite the tub. She'll bite the hook. She'll bite really? everything. Dude, wow. she is mean. That's just on a Satan over there. Dude, and they <laughs> switch off. You can't get her running and then it turns off. No, you get her running and she comes launching back. She is bad news. Wow. And they, they both are. They like hit the tubs. They're angry. Um, so, you know, perching fake plants, <laughs> tubes, like they don't give a damn. When I'm present, it's game on. So sure. they're tough nuts to crack. The rest of them, you know, I'm sure would would absolutely show the benefits so mm. it's really interesting you know i I've, i keep a lot of the old pieces of wood and and hides and fake plants and things from over the years of of keeping reptiles and and just picking stuff up along the way and i find myself using it more now than i did say five years ago um just you know sticks logs moss leaf litter you know all this stuff mm -hmm. just for sure. It, it, I'm not necessarily seeing my animals utilizing it and giving me, you know, behavioral feedback, but you know, this paper definitely makes me feel better about doing it. That's for sure. Definitely. And, and an interesting thing to, to think about too, is that a lot of the snakes perception of the world is through things that we don't quite pick up on, which is those chemical cues. Right. And, and um, like, if one of my snake sheds, I'll toss the shed in a different snake's enclosure to give them something, you know, some chemical cues, some interesting sense to just grapple with for a while, you know, to occupy their yeah. mind. And even if they don't go over there and investigate it, you, you can be pretty sure that they know it's there. And, yeah. you know, you definitely, at least for a few moments, had them stop and think, what the heck is that? Mm -hmm. Am I scared mm -hmm. of that? Do I mm -hmm. want to eat that? And then yeah. maybe they move on. But, you yeah. know, that's something really easy you can do. Rotate sheds, rotate hides. If it's all within your own collection, like there's no no harm in doing that. Right. Um, and I think you've talked about that before in one of your videos. And that was, yeah. that was great. I followed suit. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting when it's hard to ignore once you give your snakes a new novel stimuli and you see them react. It's hard to ignore that there's something there. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's very noticeable. Like, I mean, we like to think and say kind of collectively as a hobby that snakes don't see that well. And I think that's, you know, with each passing day, I disbelieve that more and more. And super um, species specific too, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. But even the animals that we think just rely on their heat pits and, and shadow detection and motion and scent, those animals are much more visually cued in than I think we give them credit for. I mm -hmm. think, you know, when I put the lights in, the first thing that happened was my two jungle females came up and went up and checked them out. Um, my Darwin female was checking it out. The hog nose were checking it out, you know, species specific, of course, but everybody was kind of like, the hell is that? What did you just <laughs> turn on? So yeah. I don't know. I mean, when I, I'll be in here recording or doing stuff and if my Kribo isn't hiding in gravage, she's staring at me through the window. And obviously again, species specific, but 
you know, my rainbow bows will sit under a leaf when they know I'm in the room for any given amount of time and stare out the window, hoping to get fed. And there's just more to these animals than I think we're able to physically perceive. So I think, you know, until we know definitively that something doesn't benefit them or changes nothing, I think there's no harm in trying and doing everything. Right. I agree hundred percent. And when you're talking about visual uh, acuity, I looked over because the falsy epitomizes that for me. It's like the most visual yeah. snake I've ever encountered. Yeah. He's staring at me right now. His head is yeah. on the, on the lip uh, up against the glass looking right at me. Yep. <laughs> yep. Like I wish that I could move my computer over there, but it would mess up my mic. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think just having that experience, even at somebody else's collection is, is vital to understanding that there's more to these snakes than we know. Like even if you only keep one species or something, just seeing that, it's pretty cool to see. It's it's like yeah. working with monitors, you know. You know when yeah. a monitor looks at you that they're looking right back at you. Part of why I really love the blackheads too. I noticed that that level of spatial awareness in them more mm. than I do the womas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the womas just look for something to bite. Yeah, hundred percent. But the blackheads, yeah. I feel like there's another level yeah. to their perception. I guess yeah. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. Speaking uh, of which. Yeah. Post ovulation shit. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, I'm hoping when I go back to work, it'll just be a, a couple days for for that female to to have her shed. When I was there yesterday picking up a drill bit, um, she she's already passed the super deep blue phase as mm-hmm. of like today, basically. So a couple more days, I bet you three, four, maybe five more days, and we'll have a, a post op shed. So. Yep. Sweet. Blackhead eggs are coming. I think about it every day. <laughs> yeah. It's neat, honestly, because it's like, I feel like I'm getting the experience of keeping and breeding blackheads without right. keeping or breeding blackheads. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm taking care of them. I'm feeding them. I'm pairing them. I'm maintaining them. I'm watching them, but they're not mine and they're not at my house. So it's like, I get the experience without any of the cost or spatial uh, requirements, which is neat. You know, that's awesome. a good experience. Yeah. I'm jealous. I wish I was there every day seeing them do their thing during this process. That's, yeah, it's cool. That's awesome. It's really neat. So, and Grant always lets me know, like, if he moves anybody or sees locks, he's like, oh, check this out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, um, Andy Middleton asked a little bit ago, and I didn't want to forget yeah. it. It was just uh, in the middle of what we were talking about. Um, any tips or tricks on setting up and dialing in an incubator? He just got a new hot box and it just got fired up this morning. Nice. How do you guys monitor temps in the egg box? So um, I, first of all, congratulations on the new incubator. Hotbox is a great company and they make an excellent product. I've heard nothing but good things about those. Uh, quite stable, insulate well, very reliable. So you shouldn't have any issues um, dialing them in. I, I definitely think it's valuable to have them running at least a month before you ever expect to put eggs in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to sort of see how it performs, you can take little thermometers or temperature gauges and put them throughout the incubator, top corners, bottom corners, center, and kind of see how balanced it is. Um, and then, you know, the other thing you can do is set up an egg box, how you intend to use it full, you know, substrate or water or whatever, put it in there and put a temperature probe in there and see what it reads. And then you can calibrate your incubator accordingly. So if you have your thermostat on your incubator set to 88, you set your egg box in there and you find that it's sitting at 86, you bump it up a degree if your goal is to get it to, to 87. So you calibrate things 
And then that way you kind of have a, a better understanding of what's going on exactly in there. The other thing you can do if you're really interested in being tech savvy is get some of those uh, sensor push buttons or there's other brands on Amazon where it's like a wireless um, temp and humidity reader that you can check on your phone through an app and stuff like that. So you can get those. Uh, definitely don't put the thermostat probe in the egg box. Just have it running for the ambient of the incubator. You, you want to understand what the incubator does in order for the egg box to do your desired thing. Um, if you're trying to have things fluctuate with the eggs, you can screw up the rest of the incubator because eventually eggs do put off their own heat and you right. could actually cause the incubator to drop in temperature because it's thinking there's plenty of heat already. Um, so right. if you're doing, you know, big projects or lots of eggs, just be mindful of that. So for me, I have my, my probe kind of running right in the middle of the incubator and, and I know it's not hundred percent perfect top to bottom. Um, but that's okay for me. I don't need that precision, honestly, after doing MI and seeing how much those eggs sure. took temperature and, and fluctuation, I'm not so concerned about it anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. That being said, it, you know, I've been running it for several seasons now and I, I know how it works. So, you know, I know if I put, you know, eggs up at the top that the fan might impact those boxes a little bit more. So I, you know, choose the egg boxes accordingly as well. And, you know, there's lots of little things like that, but running it ahead of time and, and measuring your, your parameters ahead of time is, is the best peace of mind you can do. For sure. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a great question. I also got one of those sea serpents hot boxes and hopefully this will be my first year using it. Right. So I'm going to have to do that as well. Um, and what I was planning on doing, I forget the name, but there are these little thermometer temperature, humidity doodahs that you can get that track, um, and plot the, the data for you. I forget mm -hmm. the name. I'm sure there's a bunch of different brands, but I'm planning on setting it all up. Once I know that I'm probably going to have some eggs coming like you said, maybe a month or so in advance, mm -hmm. set those things up top, bottom, inside the box. Um, because I, what I'm really curious to see is whether I get a spike in temperature overnight um, and whether I need to set a night drop because I know that my apartment gets cold at night. We don't have heat. Um, so the the incubator might be kicking into to overdrive trying to keep things at 87 or 88 mm -hmm. when it's colder outside but that might actually result in it being a little bit too hot so definitely things to watch for you know yeah i mean that, that pvc sheeting should insulate pretty well but that is mm -hmm. something to definitely keep an eye yeah. on for sure yeah so it'll be cool to see definitely want to get it dialed in before there's eggs to worry about <laughs> yeah. yeah you know don't want to be caught out in the snow without a without a jacket you know what i mean that's the one Govi. Yeah. That's what Yeah, I Govi. That's another mm -hmm. brand. Yeah. Same deal. Um, Thanks, Earl. Yeah. Anything you can do to, to add some extra insight into what's going on and do it ahead of time will help you dial it in. So, right. Right. Yep. So yeah, that enrichment paper, good stuff. Dialing yeah, in and incubator. Good good tips stuff. in the chat too. I like what Jonathan said. He said every once in a while he takes reusable sterile rat traps with the door, but he doesn't put poison in there. He puts a rat in there. So it's like a <laughs> puzzle box for the snake to yeah. get out of. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Like with my Kribos, I'll, I'll give them one rodent just to occupy their mouth. And then I'll put some like, you know, around the enclosure and they'll find them. They never yeah. last more than 10 minutes. It's, it's something to do. And it's just a little bit different than the monotonous. Here's your food. Here's your food. Here's your food. Totally. Yeah. So. 
Yep. I do that for the blackhead too. I uh, hit a quail last night and they always track it down. <laughs> yeah. Have you tried doing um, doing chicken drumsticks at all? I've seen Grant feed drumsticks Ooh. to one of the blackheads. She ate it, no problem. Nice. I haven't yet, but definitely will. Uh, the, <laughs> the girl just got big enough to do a quail, or nice. at least the quail that I had, you know, kind of small, medium. Um, but yeah, when she's big enough, I'll definitely toss some, some drumsticks to her. Yeah, it's interesting to think Anything about I can do to... food enrichment too. Yeah, anything I can do to mix up that nutrient load and and not rely too heavily on the rats. Yeah, um, I'll I'll do it for sure. Yeah. yeah. Recently, my crebos have been getting a lot of a lot of bird prey, just to give them a, a lean spring feed. You know. For sure. Yeah. But I've carpets got the... are warming up and getting getting rats and mice again now, so it's like, oh boy, I'm gonna have to refill the freezer soon. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, me too. I need to drop a few hundred dollars on food. I have nothing right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I pulled things out to pull roads. And I was like, dang, there's nothing left in here. This yeah. is empty. What I was going to say though, is at the old fish market that I used to work at, I know that there's, we have the hookups for fresh trays of like eight to 10 ounce rainbow trouts. Um, and they're cheap. Like rainbow tr- trout is one of the cheapest fish like human consumption grade fish products you can buy because um, they're farmed and, and readily available. But I'm definitely going to get a tray of that and, and feed some trout to the fall seas. And I bet blackhead would take trout as well. Oh yeah, probably. Walmart's will eat anything. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've got a good day from Australia. Good eye. Good eye. Folks from the motherland. Here. How is it down there? Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> I'm, Do you ever feed chicks to Morelia? Hell yeah. 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 Brettles are, are big time bird eaters in the wild. Darwin's too. Darwin's yeah. will take them. Yep. For sure. I don't do it heavily because I know that like beaks and, and the toenails can be kind of hard to digest mm. sometimes, but I also, I also don't run mine as hot as some people do. I don't like to give them like 90 degree hot spots. I aim for like 88, 87. So mm-hmm. stuff that's typically harder to digest. I do sparingly. That is a good point. If if you do feed the chicks, just be prepared for a little bit of something special the other mm-hmm. end on the way out. Feathers. <laughs> it's, yep. yep. It's a it's different a kind messier. of smell. <laughs> yeah, you can see that again. Yeah. But uh, it's definitely good to enrich them. You know, that that different type of, of feather roughage through the digestive system is good for them. Um, different fat yeah. content, different protein content, different oils. Um, speaking of which... Somebody was asking me the other day if you need um, like the calcium and vitamin supplements for your snakes. And and I've definitely heard of people adding um, like vitamin C oil into a rodent or mm-hmm. injecting some, some supplement into a rodent, but I've never actually done it. Right. And I always think about that. I haven't and I've done never, it either. But... I've never found my animals to be deficient of something. Right. But... I'm wondering, you know, what we could potentially add as, as very snake centric supplements into food that might help with skin condition, Mm -hmm. um, organ function over long periods of time, um, things like that. Yeah. Interesting question for sure. Loafman has told me he does calcium powder on the trout actually when he's feeding it to falsies. But I haven't had a chance to ask why. <laughs> but well, I know I know when you're doing like even if it's frozen thawed, the the fish loses a lot of um, a lot of good vitamins. So I could see that 
just being a nice way to supplement right. that. But even like rats, like, you know, the, a big rat has a good skeletal system. So there's some calcium, but they're also pretty fat from our diet and things. So I'm wondering if there's like, you know, if we know that like sna- most snakes kept in captivity tend to be deficient in like vitamin D or, or calcium or vitamin A or something like that. Is there a, a snake centric and safe way to dose feeders to supplement them? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's why Could I do be. food variety, <laughs> just because I hope that the, the variety of food at least, yeah, you know, adds some in it, different minerals and vitamins and right. things. And this goes to what we were talking about when I when I saw you two days ago, mm-hmm. um, which is just what does your rodent eat? You know, mm-hmm. if your if your rodent doesn't have a good nutritious diet and is nutrient deficient, then that just goes up the food chain, doesn't it? So, you know, if if you're feeding your rodent a lot of good produce and and things with micronutrients and and all that goodness, then that that goes to your snake. Yeah. Um, versus, you know, I God knows what's in the conventional lab rat chow, if you will. Right. <laughs> like, I, right. Who knows what's in that? So, well, yeah. I mean, if you give rodents like insects and grains and fruits and veggies and and things like that, and give them a diverse diet, I mean, that's pretty natural for what they would eat in the wild. So I would yeah. imagine that's probably the way to go, even if it isn't necessarily super uh, commercially affordable or easy to do. Um, you know, we talk about in the hobby gut loading uh insects for our feeder lizards and things to me it seems like it's on the same level exactly Uh, yeah you know if 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 any of you do your own rodent colonies throw some carrots in with your with your mice throw some crickets in there watch them smash on some crickets or some super worms like stuff like that um yeah i it's interesting stuff i you know obviously to quantify it it would take years and years of study and testing animals on a a specific diet and regiment and over generations and whatnot but um, I think it can't hurt. And if there's any product manufacturers out there listening, maybe some sort of liquid injectable reptile or snake safe thing that you can like inject into your rodents, like, uh, cause you know how they have the liquid gel vitamin D, you know, um, pills, I guess you could take, like make it very safe. Cause obviously, you know, dosage and, and drug regulations in the country are important, but Mm-hmm. Um, maybe maybe a powder is the only way, and you just roll the rodent in it. But yeah, it would be a very know. interesting study, and probably something that could be done just to to get a a good population size of captive snakes and actually just see what they're deficient in. You know, mm-hmm. snakes kept under standard conditions, like maybe they're good. Uh, you know, but it, it would be interesting to know mm-hmm. what vitamins, minerals that we perhaps are neglecting. Um, if anything, and yeah, like Ish points out, veterinary medicine sup- supplementation isn't always necessary. In some cases, it, it can be a bad thing. Um, not all of that stuff's water soluble, right? So right. if you OD on the wrong thing, even it's too much of a good thing, right? So yeah, you can over supplement uh, calcium. For know, sure. Yeah, it's definitely possible. So right. there, I think that's probably why it hasn't come to such a normalized thing because you can overdo it and and there's that's why there's regulation in such controlled you know supplements and things so yeah exactly the stuff that isn't water soluble you can't just like pee out the extra you know your body has to manage that store Mm -hmm. it deal with it in some way which when there's like way too much that's not good so 
Yeah. And, and, you know, who knows, it could have um, benefits for liver function and kidney function to prevent, you know, organ failure in older reptiles. I've, mm-hmm. I've definitely seen older lizards get up there and then, you know, what ends up doing it is, is just age related things like, you know, any biological organism, eventually their, their functions and organs burn out more or less. Right. Um, and, you know, maybe these supplements are just good at prolonging their life and longevity, you know, definitely. I think there's, yeah. I think there's tons of merit in studying that. Although, as I say that, you know, somebody could be 20 years into that study and not even close, you know, so it's, it's sure. tough. I, understand. <laughs> I understand, but you know, at least food for thought for people considering it, you know, Maybe there, maybe there's somebody out there who will take it and run with it, and 40 yeah. years from now we'll somebody uh, somebody pitch it to Loafman and go move yeah. to West Liberty. <laughs> yeah, there, you go. there you go. I can't do that kind of study remote because I don't have access to like the labs to like well, analyze you, blood you work and stuff like that. Sample size of animals, you need hundreds right. of animals, yeah. and, which and, they have on campus, but I don't have here. Yeah, <laughs> it, would, it would be some serious undertaking for sure. Like there's grad students on campus doing some really cool stuff like with crypto and whatnot. And I'm like, Oh, that sounds fun. I'm over here in California. Like, yeah. <laughs> no fancy lab equipment here. <laughs> well, at least you get to play with your snakes for school. Yes. Not complaining. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Um, the other actually, thing. Oh, go oh, ahead. Go for it. No, no, no. You. Oh, okay. Um, speaking of the enrichment favor, before we leave that behind, I think what I'm going to do um, for the second half of my thesis, which I've, had to nail down very quickly in the past week is uh, kind of adopt the uh, the open field part of that paper and construct like a an enriched environment. And I'm going to compare, well, assess and compare the like behavioral profiles and cognitive development of AI versus MI babies. So it's like mm-hmm. part one of the thesis is AKA, can you get a bigger baby? which anecdotally, we all know, probably yes, MI babies tend to be bigger, mm-hmm. like your data suggested as well. Um, and then part two will be, is there any inherent difference in the behavioral profile or, or cognitive ability of group A versus group B and, mm-hmm. and figure out how to assess that in the, in the neonates? So yeah, that's what we're doing. That'll be sweet. <laughs> My guess is there won't be a difference, but if there was, that would be really weird. (laughs) Even, even, even finding out that there isn't a difference is still good data to have. Right, right, right. If, uh, if I am so lucky to be blessed with, uh, a Bradley clutch and she Mm. beehives and does her thing, I'll let her, I'll let her go. Am I all day? That would be great. Yeah, for sure. I've been kind of thinking about it, looking at who's going to go and she might, you know, well, I guess the citrus tiger, you know, she could, she could do it. Um, I doubt my exanic coastal will just based on last year's performance where she scattered the eggs everywhere. <laughs> um, so unless she becomes a good mom this year, um, you know, it might just be the the Bradley and or the citrus tiger. And just because the citrus tiger is such a, you know, a long haul project that I've been waiting for. I'm, I'm not worried about doing MI. She's either going to do it or she's not. I've got the incubator running if she ditches the clutch or something. So mm-hmm. yeah. I think I'm going to try it. You know, I, I made a promise to myself. I want to do MI um, as much as possible, at least one clutch a season, just to keep up the experience. I don't know if mentally I think, you know, say the citrus tiger head albino does go. 
I don't know if that data is necessarily going to be super valuable just because it's a, a subspecies cross in some way, the sure. Darwin coastal mm-hmm. stuff. So from, from like a, a study standpoint, it'll, right. it'll, it'll only really contribute to anecdotal stuff as far as like measurable data. I think it would have to right. be excluded. Just Still interesting for, for you and I, but yeah. maybe not for, for the academic world. Right. right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's my, that's my assumption being that they're uh, there. It's a cross. Uh, project so yeah it, it is interesting though and i was talking to nick about all this um a couple weeks back and i think he's planning on trying to collect data for all of his uh carpet clutches this year not just the brettle stuff so there might be just some footnote at at some point in the mm-hmm. uh in the write-up that says you know in these others uh sister taxa we noticed x y and z but we can't necessarily apply it to Brettle specifically, but it, mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting nonetheless. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to sure. step away for the bathroom, but while, right. while I do that, will you uh, kind of go over the, um, the, the details you're, you're, you're going to focus on and procedurally what you'd like to, to measure and study in this uh, MI particular Bradley sure. related study? Absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, that is something that I've had to pull together very recently. <laughs> I was kind of scrambling, to be honest. I had a deadline for an outline of my thesis proposal uh, yesterday. So um, chapter one of what I'm looking at here is going to be uh, the reproductive success and neonate fitness of maternally incubated versus artificially incubated Brettles pythons. Um, so reproductive success, that's easy. That's easy to quantify. You know, what are the hatch rates? Um, who had better reproductive success, better uh, fecundity, et cetera, et cetera. And um, part of that metric is going to be just how many eggs were there, how many eggs hatched, but we're also going to be keeping detailed weights of all of the females pre temperature cycling. We took all the weights and we'll, we'll take weights again once eggs are on the ground and then we'll take weights again uh, when mom's done and babies emerge from MI coils. Um, And, and what's going to be interesting about that data is we're really going to be able to see how much uh, was taken out of a mother that was prescribed to artificial just from producing the clutch versus how much was taken out of mom that was put through an MI season, right? How much did she lose from A, laying the eggs and B, maintaining the eggs? Um, And then once you have that information too, there's a lot of adjacent data that we can look into, like how many feedings does it take artificial mom to get back to her initial weight? How many feedings does it take maternal mom to get back to her initial weight? And what are the implications for that in terms of whether you can, whether you can or should do multiple seasons of MI in a row, or if they really do need that year off, you know, otherwise you're doing them a disservice, um, stuff like that. And then neonate fitness, that's been a bit of a tricky one for me to, to figure out how to quantify um, because fitness seems like a little bit of a subject, subjective term, especially when we're talking about a captive setting. Um, but what we're going off of at the moment is measurements of mass, um, weight, uh, snout vent length, uh, you know, 
physiological measurements like that with the assumption being that bigger babies are more prepared to thrive and survive in that they got more yolk. Um, mm -hmm. They can go for a longer period of time without feed, their first feed um, because they have that energy reserve. Um, and then that kind of led me to that, that second chapter, which is that fitness and, and robustness and survivability, the physiological aspects of that is only one half. Another half of that is cognitive ability, um, behavioral tendencies, right? Um, and, and so that's why I'm going to at least try to adopt what's called an ethogram, um, where there's going to be a long list of all the potential behaviors the snake could exhibit, perching, hiding, digging, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Objective in, uh, behaviors that are clear as day, you know, nothing like happy or scared because then people <laughs> can point at you and be like, how do you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, and so then you put the snake in, well, all the babies are going to be housed in a neutral condition. And mm -hmm. then you put the snakes in this kind of open field jungle gym, if you will. And each one's going to stay in there. And this is all subject to change, but this is the plan so far. Each one's going to stay in there for 20 hours. And at hour zero, one, 10 and 20, we're going to have a camera and we're going to take 10 minutes of video and then for each of those 10-minute segments, I'm going to do tally marks on the ethogram. What is the behavior? Um, you know, if the snake's up perching, dash dash for perch, you know, and then each, each animal will, will go through that course a few times. You'll be able to see, hopefully, trends, and then we'll, we'll uh, apply some fancy statistics and see if any of the trends are significant. Um, and that is the plan for now. Uh, but it could all come crashing and burning down. So well, and that, that's the thing with with running experiments is you have to be flexible enough to alter the course of your hypothesis as you get feedback yes. too. So absolutely, you'll 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 roll with the punches and you'll get some results and data one way or the other. So yeah, I'm really confident about the first part of of everything. Just the very simple AI versus MI because as long as the snakes work with me and lay we're good. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's gonna, there's gonna be data for that. The behavior thing is where I'm a little bit kind of, we'll see how it goes. And, sure. and what Loafman has told me is that I would probably be the first grad student to not change their thesis at some point during the course of, of the studies. If I actually stick with these ideas, like everybody ends up having to tweak. So sure. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> it'll be interesting to see just cause in, in my one, one clutch sample size, I saw a remarkable difference in the offspring from previous years doing artificial incubation. So I'm, I'm really curious to see if, if you get similar results, if mm -hmm. you get big, healthy, robust babies, you know, maybe, I mean, you've already got a lot to, to measure and observe in this study as is assuming, you know, you do it across like four clutches or whatever. Right. Or however many. Um, got the four here and then hopefully two on campus and then six with mutton. Right. So, you know, you'll have you'll have 12 potential clutches of, of data to collect. So, you know, adding more on there is is not a, a small task, but it would you know, it would be also interesting to see uh, maybe as I don't know how you quantify it as a measure of fitness with everything else. But, you know, how soon the animals 
begin feeding. Yes, that's another one that we're going to look at as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, I don't, I don't know. It, your it, data. You quantify it basically just by like they eat or they don't eat. But like right. you know, when do you start feeding? When, you know, and how does that affect things? What does that tell you about their yolk? And then is that even right. feasible for, for you, the university, and Nick? Like, Right. Yeah. And and your data with, with that is is in line with what Nick has observed as well. You know, like he, he's never published results, but he's definitely taken that data and also noticed a trend for the bigger, Hmm. uh, more fit babies in the MI clutches. Um, And we're also going to stick data loggers under the coils in the egg mass and see how much mom is, is controlling things, you know, all that good stuff. Like it's really going to be a matter of just try to get as much data as possible and figure out what to do with it later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. First step is getting eggs on the ground. Second step, step yeah. is sneaking the, the data logger in there and being yeah. able to get your measurements. So yeah, make sure everything's charged up ahead of time. Oh yeah, exactly. We're trying to get a bunch of, uh, eye buttons, little like coin size data loggers that we can just slip in there, but those suckers are pricey. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they're worth it. You know, you'll get good, good informational feedback that way. Yeah. And Wolfman was saying those things, he's like, he's stuck them in crayfish dens in the bottom of rivers for like years at a time. So the nice. durability factor is there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You want it to be able to function and keep sending data. Yeah, Definitely. Yeah. But that's the plan. I will. Cool. Uh, I'll That'll see be how sweet. It goes. I know it, nice. it's funny. I was talking to my other friend who did grad school, but like for engineering, and he was like, "Oh, that sounds good. Like that'll be no problem." And I'm like, "No, you don't understand. Like the snake could just not lay eggs, and then all of my plans are garbage." You yeah, know? that's that's another thing. Like it's all out of my hands to an extent. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, an animal is is a whole nother variable just in itself yeah for yeah. sure i'm not the only one in control here that that is for certain <laughs> yeah, all you can do is cross your fingers and hope that you you gave them the the best resources and and what not possible to to actually you know follow through with this experiment yeah so yeah. no that'd be cool man yeah and then uh the other subject that i thought we would talk about is um uh, what defines a a line? Right, a, an actual line of yes. animals, a, a a lineage that is is worth uh, being named as a line and not just an animal that came from somebody. So, right. So when I produce Brettles pythons for the very first time this year, I'm going to pick one and I'm going to say this is the Lucas Lee line because I bred <laughs> snakes once. Yeah. Right. So- so no? <laughs> what the line is is not just making animals. Anybody can produce animals. It's it's refining a look. It's refining a phenotype. It's refining a genotype. It's it's doing something that has its own characteristics and doing it multiple times so it's a repeatable, quantifiable thing. Taking two wild caught poplins breeding them together for one time does not make that my line of poplin carpets damn it <laughs> so i just call them f1s because they are from wild caught animals they're the first generation first filial generation so f1s now if i take those f1s breed them together breed siblings together 
because that is the start of line breeding. When right. you when you take a look within it uh, within a group and breed it uh, to finesse that or, or refine it, redefine it, um, creating those F twos, then starts the very first generation of what I could then call as my line. Um, okay. The yeah, uh, I... wild caught animals would be founders. The F1s would be founders. The F2s would be the first generation of ones worthy of that name, you know, whatever I call it, line. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, somebody uh, just simply within Morelia, um, because we have such a finite population of animals, somebody produces animals first, right? Somebody, Somebody produced them first before you and you bought those and then produced a clutch that doesn't constitute a line. So Lucas produces, (laughs) (laughs) Lucas produces hypo stonewashed stripes from animals that Nick produced. And he then subsequently did all the work for like 15 years. Lucas then does not get to call those offspring. Lucas Lee line hypo stonewashed stripes because the legwork to set him up was done prior by somebody else. Now, if he takes that, goes a direction with it, aims for a, a certain look of stripe, takes offspring, breeds them together, makes that first generation of yeah. them, and then Say keeps I going. Read out the head stamp or something like something well, that yeah, is significant is. and and observable. Right, right, yeah. right. It has to be quantifiable in some way. Yeah. Then it is your line, but even still, it's got to be reproducible. Yep. And it has to be uh, not a one-off thing. It has to be something that you can line breed, repeat, do it at least once or twice and yes. show that it's repeatable. Random variation in your clutch does not count until you can get consistent results. And I think that the other thing that constitutes a legitimate line is when somebody has founder stock of like a new species, right. That like has not been here prior. Like mm-hmm. obviously we talk about the Afors brettles. That's a line, mm-hmm. uh, Lazic brettles. That's a line. Cause I think those were the first brettles that came in, <laughs> you know? Um, so stuff like that. Like if, if the, uh, you know what I mean? Like that's not based on a physiological trait that's yeah, based on origin stock. of origin right. of animal. Right. Um, so I can't take two Lazic line animals, breed them together, then breed siblings together and call it Riley's reptiles line. It's still Lazic right. line animals. Right. And then there's also like Swiss line for blackheads, mm-hmm. for example, like right. that's legitimate because it's a completely different bloodline coming from a different country. Right. Now, <laughs> as know? soon as you start mixing different bloodlines, documented or undocumented, making a look and then doing that multiple times over that can technically then be called a line. It's just a mix of other lines really. Um, So yeah, it really does come down to who did it first. Mm. So I, you know, to me, like it's great to, to do something unique with a combination of lines or looks, but it has to be reproducible. You have to put in the time to do it multiple times and, and somebody else has to be able to re- reproduce the same results. Um, right. So there's a lot to it. So, you know, I think calling something somebody's line gets thrown around a little too loosely in the mm-hmm. hobby without like, you know, some real substance behind it. Um, 
Agreed. Agreed. Let's see. Brandon Valentine asked, can you guys tell the difference between line and morph? Can you explain the difference? So, mm. yeah. So, I mean, a morph is something that is genetically reproducible. Okay. Um, uh, exanic, caramel, albino, something that it's, it has a definitive mode of inheritance, whether it be incomplete dominant, uh, complete dominant, uh, recessive, simple recessive, like all these different things. It, that's a morph. Um, a morph can also be just a look that is polymorphic or polygenic because there are multiple genes that make up a look. And so you get a variable expression. It is still consistently reproducible based on the amount of blood from that lineage. So that's when a line constitutes a morph. So like the Balin tiger line is a morph. So a line can Mortal be a typo part. is also mm -hmm. kind of in that mm -hmm. middle ground a little bit. Yeah. And morph is just a loose word to categorize a label for something that looks different and is, is reproducible. Like you can physically reproduce that look. It's not just a fluke. So, but then, you know, a line is also a look without necessarily being a morph too. Mm -hmm. If you think about, um, you Brisbane know, coastals. Yeah, or M-Pen coastals. There's a look right. to them. Uh, they have a certain color tone and fishnetting and zigzaggy dorsal pattern. And it's, although it's not a morph, like a Balin tiger, because right. although it does alter the appearance enough for you to notice it, um, it's not it's not a morph. That's a line uh, because it's a line of a group of species. It's not, it's selectively bred for a trait that isn't necessarily a dramatic, like half the clutch looks like this or some of right. them. They're yeah. all that one way or the other. Um, so that's very polygenic. <laughs> yeah. Extremely polygenic. Yeah. So yeah. when you selectively breed for a look, it, nine times out of 10, you're, you're making a line unless it's morph related. That's polygenic or includes other morphs and refining right. those morphs and getting the best example of them. That's when you have a morph that is also a line, but otherwise a morph is something that sits on the DNA and has a mode of inheritance for the offspring and is reproducible by anybody with said animals involved in that project. Right. The ivory jungle stuff is, is uh, selective breeding, correct? Yes. Like that's so like that, if you take something like that, that just that took generation after generation after generation, picking the, I guess, whitest and blackest baby mm -hmm. and continuing that. Right. That's a line of selection. That is a line. Yeah. Polygenic uh, phenotype. And then the stonewash right. thing, you took two normal brettles and you bred them and then half the clutch looked weird. You know, that's mm -hmm. a morph because mm -hmm. then you bred those back together and then everything looked weird because mm -hmm. it's a recessive trait. Um, it didn't take generation after generation after generation that that genetic mode of inheritance is so strong and predictable that you can just bam done you know right. stonewash there you go <laughs> right, right. Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting because you know as i'm saying that nick's line of ivory is a great example of a line that has been refined so much that it has such a dramatic it's such a dramatically different phenotype right. that it almost becomes a morph in itself because if you breed you know an ivory to an, a normal jungle unrelated the offspring will look different mm -hmm. um but it's not like 
half of them are going to be white and black like the the parents and half of them are going to be normal it's it's a blending of the two right and it's variable among the offspring and it warrants the name because of the line that went into those offspring but it's it's referred to differently instead of saying an ivory zebra when it's you know like a mix of an ivory and like a normal jungle you would say uh, a zebra with 50% ivory blood to signify that although it looks different it's not morph related it's bloodline related line mm-hmm. if, if you think of line as the shorthand for bloodline right. it makes it easier to conceptualize what goes into it it's a bloodline which means it's been selectively bred for a certain look over time and generations right so that's yeah that's the I, I think way. it's important to remember that they are both genetically based right but mm-hmm. for a line we're talking about so many different genes right that it takes a long time and if yeah. you mix them like you said you're gonna get a blend you're not gonna yeah. get like half the clutch is a stunning ivory and the other half is a normal jungle right right whereas if that's what you got it's a morph because there's right. only maybe one genetic locus at play and it's a simple recessive or something of that nature that makes a huge difference just in right. that one location right um but i can see where it gets confusing because like there's crossover too right you talk about the tiger stuff Mm -hmm. i can see how that gets confusing for folks that maybe are familiar with striping and other animals that is a simple recessive right you know well and then there's there's the peterson stripe in coastals which is another striped animal that has a similar look but is different distinguishable through the lineage and is again not a morph but a line that has a very distinct phenotype Right. So, you know, it's hard to say that the Balin tiger isn't a morph because it has such a strong phenotypic variation that is reproducible. But because the mode of inheritance isn't so cut and dry, you know, incomplete dominant or recessive, you can kind of get all of it because it's multiple genes at play. It's it's hard to say it's just a morph. It's like it's both, but it doesn't warrant the label morph because it calling it a polygenic uh, line, I think is more respectful to those mm-hmm. who put in the work and, and to really explain how much work went into it. I think calling it a line, yes. uh, uh, like creating a line is much harder than creating a morph uh, and proving it takes a, morph a lot out. longer. <laughs> right. So I think, you know, not, not that it really matters and not like any breeders are going to get getting upset about it. Um, you know, like Balin's not saying it's not a morph, it's a line. He's not like, <laughs> you know, lighting pitchforks and going after people. But it, it does help to quantify them differently, and it does have an air of uh, of respect for for the amount of work that went into that. Agreed. Yeah. So, yeah. Definitely. A great polygenic line is something that's so refined and genetically strong it will breed true when put to a genetically different animal, in my opinion. Such as certain pastel lines and boas, for example. Exactly. Yes. That's a that's a great way to to quantify and and explain that so yeah that's that's where it comes from um that's the definition of it and you know to dig into why it's important to keep track of that lines have implications for purity and the history and when you you're talking about a gene pool that is limited and no new stuff is coming in it's important to distinguish those lines so you can make sure that what you're doing is a responsible pairing trying to make sure you're not inbreeding too far although some species are you know totally fine with you know, several generations of it before you see any detrimental effects with some species, it is very crucial 
And, and it's just kind of nice, you know, with a limited gene pool, everybody kind of has everything. So it's another way to add your creative thumbprint to a project um, mm -hmm. by, you know, kind of experimenting with, with mixing some of it. And ultimately we're all just keeping snakes in boxes. So do what yes, you want. <laughs> and trying to, trying to do what the monkeys driving cars love to do, which is put labels on things. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, I, you know, it has a lot to do with just being able to communicate with one another. So we know what we're talking about or the yeah. other knows what we're saying. I do think it's really critical with some of the polygenic stuff to keep track of what's going on and, mm -hmm. and be honest about it. Mm -hmm. um, there's like, it's such a, a tightrope with <clears throat> the, the hypo stuff with brettles. Like if, if you have a 50%, you got to tell people it's a 50%, even if it looks like a 100%, you know, like it gets trickier yeah. because you have to keep track of that, of yeah. that proportion stuff, almost more like the Superdorf folks are doing, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. it matters. It's good um, information. It does matter. Mm -hmm. And it is different from a lot of other niches within the reptile community. Like, leopard gecko folks aren't paying attention to that crested gecko folks don't have to deal with that you know leaf tail right. gecko you know like so there's all these examples where you know the species is the species other than maybe some locality variation or island variation you know yeah it, it, and it's, it's, not it's the nature of of the polygenic trait where like you can have a 50 percent hypo that didn't hit on any of those major alleles mm -hmm. and at that point you have no business calling it a hypo anymore like it, it's right. a normal brittle <laughs> Yeah, you but can it say it came from, from. Yeah, to know that it came from that blood. Yeah, exactly. You, you just, but the, it takes another level of of communication and and explaining. And somebody commented on one of my videos and asked, like, in theory, if you selectively bred your nicest fifty percent hypos, can you get a hundred percent back? And I had to stop and think for a second. And, and the answer, I think, is no. Mm -mm. You at that point, you have selectively bred for reduced melanin but does that That's make the other stuff is is in there you can you can't get 100 percent. you can get 99.99 right. generations down you can make a really pretty 50 percent hypo is what or, you can do yeah or a <laughs> pretty 75 or 87 and a half or 93 oh, sure, sure, you know sure. you, you can go down that road and, and go down there but right. yeah once it's uh been diluted it can't be made pure again. Exactly. 100%. Can't remove blood from a line. You can only add more. I mean, even if you go so far with it that you even have something that looks better than some of the hundred percent, you still can't call it a hundred percent. Sure. It's yeah. just good. It's good for, for posterity purposes, preservation of, of information. And because, you know, the last thing you want is to get down the line where nobody paid attention to any of it and everything's just a Bradley or everything's just a jungler, you right. know, whatever. And then you have to start all over. You have no idea what things really are. Well, that would be fun. <laughs> Donnie, yeah. that's, why, <laughs> that's why I take it so personally when when newcomers into Morelia, the first thing they do is just breed the first two carpets they can get their hands on. Mm -hmm. And it's I get it because if you don't know, you don't see the the issues with it but you know having spent so many years learning from other people um and the people that came before us how much work they put into preserving the unique identity of subspecies species things like that you know there are crosses and there are morphs out there and that's a, an essential part of the hobby but you know the other half of that coin is preserving this stuff because ultimately australia isn't letting anything go right now so um oh yeah 100 percent 
And, and that's the learning curve. Right. Those new so, folks, right. You know, everybody has a responsibility to, if they're going to produce animals, do it in a responsible, thoughtful way. Not because there's anything wrong with making a cross, but because if you're going to do something, might as well do something that, you know, doesn't undo somebody else's work or adds more value to the community as a whole, like more pure coastals. They don't have to be any fancy line, but it's better than adding coastal jungles or coastal Darwin crosses. Cause they essentially take away from the overall population gene pool that, you know, you could think of as preserving these animals in case something goes wrong in the wild or right. who knows what, you know, we already saw, how close some species came to being wiped out in Australia because of those fires. Yeah. And uh, in the Ruffy episode of NPR recently, that really got me thinking with cane toads marching their way into the Kimberly and Mm -hmm. Ruffy's eating toads and frogs. It's like, uh Oh (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot to, there's a lot of value in, in preserving these pure lines. Not that there isn't value in, um, in the the cross and morph projects it's just a different type of value uh i think so that's just me no Um, i'm with you i'm with you for sure yeah jeff says that reminds me of the doomerals madagascar cross and morph market right now i don't know that's (laughs) see that's an example of when when i do have a problem with it because the the mad grounds are not well established in the hobby they they hardly exist in in any significant numbers and so crossing them out with uh, Dumerals is just an injustice because ultimately if those animals are, if that's the last production that female has, say she's the last of her line and she dies before you can actually ever produce more ground boas, right. you've eventually completely taken a, a chunk out of that population and, mm-hmm. and impacted its survivability. Um, yeah. You know, unless yeah. there's a huge, thriving, a robust, abundant um, population of something like that, it's it's hard for me to say that that's okay to cross out until something's well established. I I can't see any good in that. I feel like there should always be a justification, a reason for producing living things and even if i don't know what the reason would be for that yeah (laughs) it's pure i mean pure stuff like there should be a justification for you should at least know what you're you're doing like (laughs) Like what your goal is yeah Yeah. no random homeowner should go get sulcatas and be like i want to breed them unless there's a demand for it because you know certain species they're just too many of them they don't need any more like Oh yeah, the Boland's Jungle Cross. That was another one. That one was really bad. Uh, was not a fan of that, and that's ultimately why I have a huge problem with hybrids. I think hybrids are gross because, um, well, we've already said it. But at the same yes. time, yes. certain hybrids, you know, whatever, they don't impact the population like Carpondros. Whatever, I don't care. Do your thing. Uh, Jesus hates Carpondros. Yeah, <laughs> we got your back, Gary. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's just. It's, it's interesting to to see how other people kind of almost like narrow-mindedly or or shallowly just breed things because they're curious. I just, you know, in certain instances, it's not the responsible thing to do. So. Agreed. I agree. That's all I have to say on that one. 100%. <laughs> You're living things. You're, yeah. yeah. I mean, you're not just, you know, 
doing an art project. Like we right. use the word hobby, but we probably shouldn't. <laughs> I have I have seen some discussion about that as well. I've seen discussion about referring to your animals as a collection and what that has to do sort of in how we mentally consider and think of things. You know, is there a, like merit to calling them family members or pets, even if you're breeding them? Like there's there's a lot of things like that. So, yeah, the terminology always struck me as odd um, yeah. hobby, right? Like yeah. when I think of hobby, I think of like crocheting or stamp collecting, but like right. these are, these are living, breathing, significantly, you know, unique animals. So yeah. it's an interesting choice. <laughs> mm -hmm. Interesting choice. Yeah. So. Brandon says, okay, hear me out. Ivory zebra to a diamond. Brandon, get out of here. I'm disappointed in you. Go put yourself in the shame corner. That was awful. No. The 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 jungle diamond cross days of the 80s are over. <laughs> no, that's just me. I'm just let harsh. the past die. Yeah. Kill it if you have to. Yeah. Nick would be upset if he heard you say that. Albino high percentage bread. Nick's always upset. Wanting to make. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so that's the thing. The albino breadly is a great example of a beautiful snake that is a complete species hybrid. But like, <laughs> but dude, it looks good. Like, so do it. And it's the same thing with the ivory diamonds. I get it. Making an ivory diamond, you know, cross, whatever. But see, that's an instance where you you have a reason you have a goal i may sure. not necessarily agree with it but sure. you're you, you know that's different like yeah. you know what you're trying to do so yeah. if if that's Make your prerogative it, and... for a look go for it just yeah. know that i'm not gonna buy one <laughs> exactly don't you dare send one to me because i will have nothing to do with it other than get mad that it's taking up space here <laughs> like the facebook picture oh that's pretty but yeah no yeah <laughs> so i get it I get it, you know, to each his own. We're again, we're just keeping snakes in boxes, but yeah, um, they're not for me. That's all I'm gonna say. Yes, I I agree. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so, is there anything you wanted to to get out there or touch on before we maybe close out here? Good question. <laughs> I don't think so. I, I almost got bit by the falsy yesterday. Uh -oh. Nobody tell Nipper. Uh -oh. uh, I, I mean, hey, I was being responsible. There was some stuck shed. We did a long soak. Got it all off. I didn't nice. get bit, but that was that was a zesty moment for me. Yeah. Uh, also got bit by a Brettles python because I didn't use the hook. Yep. Uh, and my ruffie uh, seems to only want live. So nice. that's nice. that's my only things. There you go. <laughs> I found out that the uh, the mandarin rat snake I got was a boy, and Chris Sharp hit me up. He's like, it's female? I'm pretty sure I sexed it as a boy. And I was like, huh, I must have misremembered. And I go sex it. Sure enough, it's a boy. So, okay. Uh, you know, apologies to Chris. Uh, didn't mean to <laughs> I, I just misremembered. So the mandarin didn't want its second meal, but I think I gave it a second one too soon. So it's it mm. ain't the first one for me. So it's doing just fine. Nice. And, and no food goes to waste around here. So the Savannah monitor got the unwanted uh, mouse pinky when the Mandarin didn't want it. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. And uh, Jeff, uh, we, we did discuss it first thing, but again, more yeah. US Arc yeah. love. Yep. yep. Um, definitely, definitely support. Definitely go sign up to be a member if you aren't already. Um, and at the very least, you can get on their 
their newsletter list they sell or uh, they they uh, email out, uh, not sell, and yeah. just stay informed on the current legislation that they're they're working on keeping from taking your rights away in all the various states. Uh, yeah. yeah, there's always something you can do, even if 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 finances are tight and and you're not able to sure. support financially. That doesn't mean you can't support. You know, yeah. post on social media. Um, there's there's other ways to do it. You know, yeah. Just, there's a new Instagram page for USARC, the official USARC Instagram page. So um, that'll probably be another good resource to get good live updates as things progress, legislative wise. Um, I'm sure that'll be another tool that they add to their their arsenal of keeping everybody informed. And uh, yeah. yeah, so and one thing we can all do that's free is just you know try to try to focus on the positive mm-hmm. represent what we're doing to to others in a positive way yeah and uh you know just be a uh, a quote model citizen of the, of yeah. the keeping community if you yeah. will at the moment I have, a, I have an interesting story to kind of close that out that touches on exactly that and it, why it's interesting is it, the, this friend of mine will remain nameless um but he was one of the individuals that was in the hobby in terms of Morelia and breeding and stuff before I was. And when I got to meet him through other friends, became very close friends with this guy, you know, went to his wedding and everything. Um, so he was a longtime keeper and he's no longer in the hobby anymore. He might have a couple snakes at home um, just for, you know, because he loves them, but uh, you won't see him on social media in reptile groups. You won't see him do, do any posts in, the Morelli groups or anything. And, uh, and without, you know, getting into the specifics of what's been going on in the, in the hobby lately on a public and global forum, he was telling me that it was interesting to see what's going on. And from his perspective, he is glad he is not a member of this community right now because of some of the things ongoing and how it portrays reptile keepers to folks outside of the and that really, really hit home. Um, essentially, somebody outside of the hobby said, "You guys look stupid right now," and I'm glad mm-hmm. I'm not you. Um, and that, and that's, you know, that's a fair um, perception. That's somebody's experience, and that's somebody who understands reptiles. Imagine yeah. how foolish somebody who doesn't understand the reptile community might perceive folks when we're divisive and fighting amongst ourselves in a public forum. So. Right. Um, if you don't have the money to donate to us arc or you don't have animals that you could, you know, donate proceeds from sales of, or, or anything at the very least, you can be, um, just a, a good representative of the hobby. I mean, everything we do, people see in the lens of, well, who is this guy and what is he about? If you're a reptile guy and you're acting out, they're going to be like, man, this, this reptile dude is He's, he's a goofball or he's kind of obnoxious. And then they start seeing all reptile people through that lens. So, you know, 100%. we're a small, small community, even though we immerse ourselves amongst all these other reptile folks. And it feels like we're surrounded by reptile people everywhere because, you know, there's reptile people everywhere. But in the reality, we are a very, very, very small part of the, the global population. And there's a lot more people that would rather see our ability to keep reptiles be diminished entirely, especially with um, COVID and the results of 
you know, this disease spreading from wet markets of exotic places. We, right. we deal with exotic animals. It's very easy for somebody to put to those two together right. and, and think that we are a part of this problem that is global. Um, 100%. And, and so, yeah, look, if we can't respect each other, treat each other with respect and have each other's back, we can't expect people outside of this to do that for us. Sure. You know, that's. Yeah. And, and, you know, be careful who you associate with. If, if you, if you are perceived as being in the same circle of friends as somebody who is not being a good steward for the community, you don't have to join in. You can just, you know, push that out of the way and stand alone. Even if, you know, you think you're alone, there are other people out there that, that are like you and just, you know, don't fall prey to it. Don't be baited in and just keep putting one foot in front of the other. If you're out in any sort of public forum, whether it just be walking down the street, talking to your neighbors and you're the reptile guy wearing the snake shirt, they know that, you know, they remember your actions and your behaviors. And it sucks to say, you know, you have to care about what other people think of you, but that's the world we live in. Absolutely. People care way too much, which is just a, a product of, you know, human nature and everything being globalized and in our pockets. You can't avoid it. And so you don't have the right to just act a fool because you want to. You're representing everybody else. So just, you know, we have to be conscious in the decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis. It's no different. It's just we have to understand that everything is looked at through the microscope right now. And it's an ever-present privilege that we could lose like that if somebody, you know, decides to you know, just make a legislative ban or something, you know, there's all this stuff going on. And I, every time I get onto this little soapbox, I feel like a broken record. I feel like I'm beating a dead horse, but it's, it's so, so true. And I see it so often to this day that people are just not keeping that in perspective. And I'm, I'm not perfect. I have definitely lost perspective and, and, you know, said and done things that didn't benefit the hobby or myself or had no real end game. Hmm. And that's, that's why I don't have Facebook on my phone. That's why, you know, I just try to stay out of groups because we're all human and find something funny and it might be a little bit offensive sure. or whatever. And we, you know, we just share it and don't really think about it, but you know, recent events has made it really clear that we're all in this together. We all represent the reptile keepers of the world as a, as a, as a global community and, and we can do better. So. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more, my friend. Riley. Riley Jimson. <laughs> you are the man. <laughs> I am a man. It is always a highlight of my week speaking to you, sir. <laughs> you got me twice. Yeah, I know. I'm, it, yeah. I don't know how you put spoiled, up. With, I don't know how you put up with me, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a lot of fun though. It was great. It was great visiting you again. And that, you know, there's so much cool stuff to see in yeah. addition to just, you know, good hanging. So yeah, that was cool. Yeah, keep your camera rolling. I want to see what's going on with your stuff too, and I'll keep you posted yes. on blackhead egg development and all that good stuff. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Did you want to um, throw your throw your anything out there or throw your stuff yeah, out there? Sure. Um, so just real real quick, of course, yeah. Morelia Python Radio Network. Um, if you are watching this, you're on the YouTube channel. Make sure that you have subscribed. Uh, give the video a like if if you feel so inclined. Um, you can follow the uh, the network on Instagram and and whatnot. Um, support the various podcasts that we have going. Uh, should we list them or should we? <laughs> <laughs> Should we go there? I didn't make the list like Eric. We can uh, try. We can okay, try. Student of the Serpent, uh, Carpets and Coffee, uh, Carpet Cliff Notes, uh, Call You Rude Corner, 
um, the OG Morelia Python Radio. Uh, Field Herping Podcast. Field Herping Podcast incoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's there's other like there's a couple more herb history and yep, stuff is on history. the yep. on the original feed. What I miss? Yeah. What I miss? No, that's all seven of them that are up and and out yeah. there right now. That's the lineup. I uh, I I went back and finished the uh, the live stream with Eric and Owen, and I paid attention to that part at the end because I was like, I wonder if he's going to get them all. Yeah, um, <laughs> that was my first time trying. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy, especially when you're like, oh crap, I didn't write this down. Exactly. Um, yeah, and then yeah, Eric again is is taking a rest. He's uh he's being affected by the cold more than than yeah. some of us, so he's taking a breather. So we're we've taken the reins for him, um, and then uh, don't forget what oh your horseback riding yeah <laughs> don't forget to uh if you if you like the the past nine plus years of what eric and owen have done for morelia python radio and the community don't forget to uh go support them on patreon uh again as lucas said subscribe to this youtube channel share it around let's help it grow and and then that way this yeah. effort that they put forth managing seven podcasts plus nine years of their original podcast plus the Teespring store, NPR network, all this stuff. You can Facebook vote. community pages, you carpet can, fest. You can, <laughs> gosh, yes. Carpet fest. Holy cow. COVID <laughs> ruined that temporarily, but man, oh. they have done a lot and you can support them. Even if you can't make it to carpet fest, even if you can't catch shows live, you can buy some merch. You can become a patron for just five bucks. You can help. I mean, some of you are probably like, well, you guys are involved, so you're benefiting from it, but we're, we're not taking anything out of this. This is all just, because Eric and Owen have done so much and they, they kind of came into the, uh, the fundraising side of this kicking and screaming. They didn't want to do it um, because they're too good for us. And so I, I took the evil upon myself. Um, So yeah, Yeah. we we just, you know, they deserve, uh, you know, any sort of gratitude and the more fundraising. It's all going back into the content. It's all go back, going back yeah. to the show, herping yep. trips, things mm-hmm. like that. Which New equipment. Are... Eric's upgrading his microphone. You know, Owen's taking care of good stuff. And yeah, yeah so it, it's all You're going back. You're not actually to... buying us coffee. No, <laughs> no, no. We buy our own coffee. This yeah. money is just a, a gesture to, to help support what they've done and to keep them going because it is a, a huge time commitment and their significant others uh, allow them to step away so frequently to record and do these things it's the least we can do so um yeah with that being said lucas did you want to throw out your personal stuff yes uh you can find me on all the thingies centralian exotics uh centralianexotics.com go buy a chondro hoodie oh yeah i made some stuff on teespring if you uh if you want to check those out i actually got some they're not in this room so i can't show them off but they came out great i can i can say they look good (laughs) nice nice one day i'll get one day i'll get off my butt and and redo my my shirts and get those back in order. I need to do that. Sure. I just your logo is badass, man. I'll buy one. I just need to figure out how to make that logo in a higher resolution right. digital file so I can stretch it. But right, um, right. yeah, all right, throw out your stuff. And then yeah, you can mm-hmm. you can find me on YouTube just under Riley Jimison. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook under Riley's Reptiles. Uh, don't forget to check out Colubrid Corner. Um, I think that's it. Excellent. Well. Yeah. Man. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. This was a great time. And I hope everybody has a good week. We'll see you next time. Enjoy some coffee and Morelia Monday. Yes. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right, bud. Have a great day. All right. Adios. Later.